Hey guys, it's Marianne with Crime Scene and Cupcakes. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5, Part 2 of the Carr Brothers Massacre, or was known in the national circles as the Wichita Massacre. So, in December of 2000, Wichita, Kansas was in the grips of one of the coldest winters that it had experienced in some time. And while the blanket of snow that had provided such a sparkling backdrop to the twinkling Christmas lights and decorations, nine days of terror was approaching from Dodge City. In the form of two brothers, Reginald and Jonathan Carr. By the end of their visit, five people would be dead in a city gripped by fear, which was already reeling from a quadruple homicide the week before. Wichita, Kansas is known as the birthplace of Pizza Hut and White Castle, but it has also become synonymous with some of the most notorious killers, Dennis Rader and the Carr brothers, Reginald and Jonathan Carr. We're going to discuss Dennis Rader and his self-imposed nickname that he gave himself later on in another podcast. But for right now, we're going to discuss the Carr brothers. Their lives have been so intertwined with one another that it's impossible to discuss one of the brothers without discussing the other. So, On December 7th, Andrew Schreiber was a 23-year-old assistant baseball coach at Kansas Newman University, and he had actually played baseball for the Wichita State University. I didn't realize this until I was doing my research and had found out on another crime podcast um, that he, uh, the Wichita podcast, uh, which is a local podcast here as well, that he had actually played for Wichita State University. So I really recommend you guys, especially those of you local here in Wichita, to give the Wichita podcast um, a listen because they are awesome when it comes to Wichita history. So this night, after he had played baseball, Andrew stops at the local come and go, which we no longer have those around here. Um, He had needed some skull, and after picking up his can, he headed back to his car. So Andrew, also known as Andy, reached his car, and he suddenly had two men approach him and put a gun to his head. The men forced him into his car and then forced him to drive around to different ATMs to withdraw as much money from his accounts as they could until his card stopped working. They got $800 off of Andy. He said later, I was just hoping that if I did what they said, they would let me live. At some point during this fateful drive, the brothers split up. One rides with Andy, with the other following. Now I am sure at that moment, Andrew becomes even more terrified. If they split up, what does that mean for him? The brothers make Andrew drive out to a dirt road near Kichai, which at that time is still pretty desolate. Then they begin pistol whipping Andrew, viciously beating him, and I'm sure Andrew is wondering if he will live to see the next day. So the next thing the brothers do is really kind of odd after they're beating the tar out of him. And it's really odd once you find out what they do with the re- after the rest of their spree in Wichita. They raise their guns and shoot. 
out his tires. All the tires. Then they take his money, his watch, pistol whip and beat the crap out of him, shoot at his truck, and leave. Pretty weird, right? The rest of their victims weren't so lucky. So this is the first crime that we know of to begin their week in what has become known as their reign of terror. What's interesting is that they didn't kill Andy. They scared the hell out of him, but they didn't kill him. So it leaves many to wonder why. Was it because he cooperated? Was it because he was pleasant, polite? But we have little time to wonder about that because the brothers were on the prowl again. Three nights later, on December 11th, they followed the car of 55-year-old Ann Walenta a wife and mother to two children. Anne was a cellist and the symphony librarian for the Wichita Symphony Orchestra. She was on her way home from symphony practice around 9.30 when she noticed a car that seemed to be following her. They followed her into a home in Vicarage and when Anne pulled into her driveway, the car drove past her and down the cul-de-sac. Then it came back to her driveway. Now, if anybody knows Vicarage in Wichita, it's a very affluent neighborhood. And you definitely know cars that don't belong in that neighborhood. You know when something's off. And Anne knew something was not right here. So Anne was still in her car when an African-American man came up to her window claiming to need help. Anne rolled down her window just a little so she could hear him. But when she did, He put a gun into the opening and threw her car into reverse in an attempt to escape. The man fired off seven shots, three of which hit Anne. Her car hit the curb on the other side of the street and Anne fell forward onto the car horn, her car bleeding loudly. The men heard that and it terrified them. While the men escaped, Anne's neighbors were calling the police. Not only had they heard the gunshots, but someone's car horn was blaring. Anne Walenta was taken to the hospital and luckily she was able to give her story to the police officers. Three days later, a culmination of cruelty that happens in this period is what many call, is why many call it. Anne Walenta was taken to the hospital and was able to give her story to the police officers. Three days later, a culmination of cruelty that happens in this period is why many people call it a massacre. I think it's why in Wichita, we just call it the Carr Brother Killings because there is no English word that we in Wichita have found that truly exemplifies the true heinous actions of what happens. In the following story, we have so many heroes, Andrew Schreiber, Anne Walenta, and our next one that we are just going to call H.G. H.G. is a hero, a survivor, a true embodiment of how strong the human spirit can truly be when the will to survive comes to call. I know many in Wichita know H.G.'s true identity. However, I will be respecting the code and will be calling her H.G. 
H.G. has been through enough, and H.G.'s story belongs to H.G. and H.G. only. For her to tell when and how she wishes to tell it. So in our telling, we will be using the story H.G. shared with the press and in court. But she will be called H.G. only in this telling. We are going to try not to go into gratuitous descriptions in this event. We are going to do our best to avoid going into gratuitous descriptions of the events. We are sharing this story because it is a part of Wichita's history. Because so many wonder why we think the death penalty is an appropriate measure in this case. We share this case to remember the victims. We also go share honestly. Earlier, we had also shared a lot of the brothers' history because nothing happens in a dome. Stephen King shout out, by the way. In the process of their development, that has brought us to the cold day in December. We understand that their childhood can factor into some of their choices. However, their choices are theirs and theirs alone. However, bottom line, there is plenty to show. However, bottom line, there is plenty to show that the brothers were in control. They took that control and used it to abuse, molest, sodomize, and kill a group of people who were living their regular lives people who had done nothing to another person. They took away one man's dreams of a Christmas proposal, another man's dream of following his faith and giving himself to God. They even killed and tortured a small dog for no other reason except for pure brutality. They pit a town against one another just a week after a previous quadruple homicide, Wichita was again hit by the Carr brothers. And when we should have been pulling together, our town was pulled apart. At the end of this podcast, we will discuss the Supreme Court's ruling. And hopefully this will be the final ruling. So we will begin to heal wounds and bring an end to a 22 year tragedy. So this brings us to a true survivor of this horrible story that we are. So this brings us to a true survivor of this horrible story that we will know as HG, a 25 year old teacher who was a sole survivor who lived to share this story and to ensure the Carr brothers saw immediate justice. of December 14th, H.G. had decided she was going to spend the night with her boyfriend. That one choice changes her life forever. Her 26-year-old boyfriend, Jason Beffert, was still coaching basketball and her friends were just having a regular Thursday night. 
HG had gotten there around 8.30 p.m. with her dog, an adorable little schnauzer named Nikki, and she was grading papers while waiting for Jason to come home. Jason and his college friends, 27-year-old Brad Hayeka and 29-year-old Aaron Sander, lived in this triplex together. All three men were doing great things with their lives. Jason was a bespectral. Jason was a bespectacled science teacher at Augusta High School, and he coached the boys' junior varsity basketball team. It was also said that he had a flamboyant streak and loved to wear these bright blue shoes he had. Brad Hayeka was a director of finance at the Koch Institute. Brad was considered a valued employee with a bright future. He had been promoted three times in three years. He was described as having a winning smile and a great sense of humor. Aaron Sander was the other roommate and had recently made a big life change. He had previously worked as a financial analyst at Coke Industries as well, but quit so that he could go into the priesthood. He had always been a devout Roman Catholic and had felt the call to become a priest. To do this, he had to break up with his girlfriend, Heather Mueller. Heather was a dear friend to him, and she too was a devout Roman Catholic. Heather and Aaron didn't have any ill feelings towards one another. And in fact, Heather had also felt like she might be calling to become a nun. 25-year-old Heather Muller was a pretty young woman with a light brown hair and currently a graduate student at Wichita State. Aaron Sander was the other roommate and had recently made a big life change. He had previously worked as a financial analyst at Coke Industries as well, but quit so that he could go into the priesthood. He had always been a devout Roman Catholic and had felt the call to become a priest. To do this, he had to break up with his longtime girlfriend, Heather Muller. Heather was a dear friend to him, and she too was a devout Roman Catholic. Heather and Aaron's breakup was amicable, and in fact, Heather felt like she too might also become a nun. Five-year-old Heather Muller was a pretty young woman with light brown hair and was currently a graduate at Wichita State University. She was a preschool teacher and had worked at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School. She had joined the men and HG for the evening. HG had her own key and let herself in. Jason arrived home around 9.15 p.m. And not long after arriving home, he and H.G. went to bed. 
At this time, around 10 p.m., Jason checked all the lights and locks and headed to bed himself. Aaron was asleep on the couch in the living room and Heather was asleep in the bedroom. Brad had also already headed to bed in his basement bedroom. The friends were settled in for the night when around 11 p.m. the porch light came on and Holly and Jason heard a knock on the door. Then they heard voices and shouting. That's about the time Jason's bedroom door burst open. H.G. would later recall that a tall black male was standing in the doorway. Nikki had her teeth bared and was growling at the unknown intruders. The man demanded that they get the dog or they'd shoot her. The friends in the house didn't know that these men were the Carr brothers, and H.G. would refer to them as the tall one, Reginald, and the shorter one, Jonathan. H.G. would later tell the police that the tall one, Reginald, had on a black coat and black leather gloves, and the shorter one, Jonathan, had poofy hair that was styled in clumps and wearing a leather jacket and an orange and black FUBU sweater, jeans, and tan hiking boots. Jonathan ripped the covers off of Jason and Holly, and Reginald forced Aaron into the bedroom with a gun aimed at him. Aaron was thrown on the bed, and the cars demanded to know if anyone else was in the house. Out of sheer terror, the three friends told the cars about Heather and Brad in the other rooms. One of the brothers went and gathered them as well. Now that all five of them were in the same room, the cars demanded they all strip naked. The brothers asked them Before we go any further, I would like to issue a content and trigger warning. The following content is for mature audiences only and might be a trigger to some individuals. It involves sexual assault, sodomy, and murder and animal abuse. So if any of those items make you upset or uncomfortable, please do not go any further into this podcast. Now that all five of them were in the same room, the cars demanded that they strip naked. The brothers asked their terrified hostages if they had any money. The hostages told them to take the money and anything they wanted. They were willing to give them anything they had in the house just to make them leave. The men asked them where the safe was, but there wasn't a safe. One of the men said, in a house this nice, there has to be a safe. However, money wasn't the Carr brothers' only motive that night. It's not known if the rest of the events were part of some kind of plan or if it's something they decided just on the fly. But once the hostages were naked, the brothers forced them into the bedroom closet and told them not to talk. The brothers began to pull the hostages out in pairs and force them to perform sexual acts on one another. First was Heather and H.G who the cars directed to perform digital and oral acts on each other. 
Then Heather was returned to the closet and Brad was brought out. The brothers ordered them to have sex with HG, but Brad couldn't get an erection. He tried to make it happen, but couldn't. The men got angry that Brad couldn't get an erection and took him back to the closet. Jason was brought out after the cars got annoyed with Brad's inability to perform. But Jason couldn't get an erection either. Who could after these circumstances? So he also tried to force himself inside HG so the men wouldn't hurt them. But when the brothers found out they were dating, they made him stop. They didn't want the legitimate couple to be together. Jason was taken back to the closet and Aaron was brought out and also forced to have intercourse with HG. However, Aaron stood strong with his religious convictions and told the men that he couldn't do it. They responded by hitting him in the back of the head with the butt of the pistol. HG was taken back to the closet and Heather was taken out. The hostages in the closet could hear what was going on just 12 feet away. They could hear that Aaron was once again being forced to have intercourse, but this time with Heather. Not only does he not want to do this to his friend, former girlfriend, he doesn't want to do this at all because of his religious convictions. And it's an especially stressful and scary situation. The cars didn't care about Aaron's religion. One of them hit him in the head over and over again with a golf club and told him that he had until 11.54 to get hard. It was 11.52. According to one source, no punishment was enforced when he didn't, but another said he was beaten with a golf club and then he was ushered back to the closet. So we do have differing ideas in court documents. Jason was then forced to have intercourse with Heather. Brad was next. HG remembered being able to hear Heather moan in pain after their torture show. The cars asked which of the five friends had ATM cars. The cars asked which of the five friends had ATM cards. After their torturous show, the cars asked which of the five friends had ATM cards. One brother was going to take them to the ATMs. However, because they were stressed, Heather, HG, and Brad couldn't find their keys. The cars threatened to pop someone. The keys were found to Jason's truck. Then they were taken one by one to the pickup and Reginald would force them to drive to an ATM. And the first one up was Brad. While Reginald was out with Brad, Jonathan brought HG back out and raped her before callously throwing her back in the closet. Brad and Reginald returned and Jason was next to go with Reginald. Back in the closet, Brad told his friends nothing about the ATM trip. Even when Aaron asked him, should we try to resist? Brad wouldn't respond. This time, while Reginald was away, Jonathan raped Heather. When Reginald returned, HG volunteered to go to the ATMs. Reginald only let her put on a sweater because he liked seeing her without her underwear. 
She was instructed to drive Jason's truck to the banks and to not to look at Reginald, who was crouched in the back seat. The man talked to H.G. on their trip. He asked her what his partner had done with her while he was gone. She told him the man had raped her. Reginald just laughed and asked, well, did you like it? H.G. didn't want to make him angry, so she told him she had. He asked her if she had ever been with a black man before, and she admitted that she hadn't. Reginald asked her if the man that had raped her was better than her boyfriend, and she again didn't want to anger him, so she said yes, again. He asked her if she had liked being with a girl, and she told him no, because this seemed like a slightly less inflammatory question. Reginald then responded to her, Baby, that's all right. You ain't gotta lie to me. H.G. took the opportunity to find out what the men were going to do. She asked Reginald if they were going to shoot them. He told her, no, not at all. Then she asked, you promised you're not going to kill us. He said, no, we're not, as long as you do what we say. While they were at the ATM, Reginald put his gloved hand on her privates and rubbed. H.G. was surprised and slammed into the window. After H.G. took out the money, on the way back to the house, Reginald said that he wished they could have met under different circumstances. He said she was cute and we probably really would have hit it off. She just looked at him and said, yeah, me too. When he asked her what she meant, H.G. told him, well, I'm not really having a good time. H.G. would be the last of the friends to be taken to the ATMs, and by then the cars would have taken over 1800 in cash from them. Back at the house, the torture continued. The men asked their captives if they wanted a drink, but all said no. The men also found Nikki's muzzle. H.G. put it on Nikki, hoping to keep her quiet and safe. Reginald raped and sodomized H.G. Jonathan raped Heather again and then H.G. again. It seemed like the night would never end for the victims. It would later be wondered why the three male hostages never tried to rise up and overtake their captor. There were times when Reginald was out and at least two of the men were there with Jonathan. And there were times that the women were being raped when all three could have gotten the jump on Reginald and Jonathan. However, it was noted that there was not a single solitary weapon in that house. None of the hostages were familiar with guns. H.G. would later testify that there was a time when she was on her hands and knees while one of the brothers was unzipping his pants and preparing to assault her again that he laid the pistol on the floor only two feet away from H.G.'s hand. She said she thought about grabbing it, but then she realized that she had no idea how to use a gun. They all assumed that these men were there just for the money and valuables, and thought if they just did what these men said, they would be fine. The brothers destroyed the house looking for money. When they found the popcorn tin, they opened it and there was an engagement ring inside. Jason told H.G., that's for you. I was going to ask you to marry me. 
Jason and HD had been dating for several years and his friends and family had been teasing him about when he was going to propose. He decided he was going to do it. He bought her a ring about a week before this night and had planned to ask her the following Friday on December 22nd. He'd even bought a book on how to propose. At this point, it was about midnight, and the cars were ready to move to the next phase of their nightmare. The five hostages were led at gunpoint out to the Honda Accord that belonged to Aaron. It was less than 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and there was at least a couple of inches of snow on the ground. But the cars wouldn't let them get dressed. The two women were only allowed to wear a sweater or a sweatshirt, and the men were completely naked. All of them were barefoot. The cars tried to shove all five hostages into the trunk, which shows they were not thinking. Because all five grown adults would never fit into the sedan's trunk. So they regrouped and only three men were shoved into the trunk. Reginald then took HG and demanded that she join him in Jason's truck again. Jonathan drove Aaron's Honda with Heather in the back seat. HG then made a mental note of the time, 12.07 a.m. This terror had been going on for three hours. They were all shuttled to an empty soccer field and Reginald ordered HG to get in the Honda next to Heather. The men were taken out of the trunk and lined up in front of the silver sedan. H.G. said she turned to Heather and exclaimed, They're going to shoot us. H.G. and Heather were then brought out to stand beside the men. Heather stood by Aaron and H.G. by Jason. When all were ordered to turn away from the men and kneel, H.G. remembered, As I was kneeling, a gun went off. Then I heard Aaron. I could distinguish Aaron's voice. He said, please, no, sir, please. And then the gun went off. She was remembering this in court. She heard three shots before she felt a bullet hit the back of her head. She remembered everything went gray with white stars. She said she didn't lose consciousness or fall forward, so one of the men kicked her forward, and she decided to play dead. She lay in the freezing snow in nothing but a sweater. The brothers then got in Jason's truck and ran over the bodies. H.G. felt the truck hit her, too, and it's amazing her strength, but she stayed still and quiet. She said, I waited until I couldn't hear them anymore. Then I turned my head and I saw the lights going away. I looked at everyone. Everyone was face down. Jason was next to me. I rolled him over. There was blood squirting everywhere. So I took off my sweater and I tied it around his head to try and stop it. He had blood coming out of his eyes. She was thinking that since there was active bleeding, Jason might still be alive, and H.G. knew she needed to get help. 
She was either going to die out there with a head wound or by freezing to death if she didn't do something. She saw Christmas lights in the distance and decided she was going to live. She ran naked through the snow, across a field, climbed over a barbed wire fence and the main road. Every time she saw a car light, she dropped to the ground thinking it might be her attackers. When she finally reached the house with the Christmas lights, she beat on the door to the house and rang the doorbell to get the people inside to help her. H.G. was taken to the hospital and gave the police as much information as she could before she went into surgery, including descriptions of the men and Jason's truck. It turns out that the reason she was still alive was the metal hair clip she had been wearing had deflected the bullet. The cars had not counted on her living. With H.G.'s description of Jason's Dodge truck, the officers got the license plate and registration and put out a bolo, or be on the lookout. So after the 911 call, units were dispatched to the soccer field. It was around 2 a.m. by then. That's when Cedric County Deputy Matthew Lynch arrived at the scene. This information is gleaned from the Oxygen show, Killer Siblings when they had done a special on the Carr brothers. Deputy Lynch, when he arrived, realized that no other officers had checked off that they were arriving at the scene, so he knew he was on his own. But he proceeded because he didn't know if anyone else might be alive. He does a sweep of a silver Honda nearby that has its motor running with his gun drawn. It's a wide area with zero cover or protection. But then it's at that moment he sees victims. Deputy Lynch stated for Oxygen that it was literally like a movie set. There were two bodies out in front of the Honda laying face down in the snow with another laying on top of them with a sweater around his head. Then there was a fourth victim, a female victim to the left. Then he saw a gap with a blood spot in the snow, so he knew someone was missing. He then calls into dispatch that he's got four code reds. As most Wichitans know, almost every police car, fire truck, and ambulance arrived at Stryker Field after that. I think we all, I think we all remember the sounds of the sirens hearing the stricken stories from first responders after that morning because this is not something that normally happens in Wichita, Kansas. Kevin Brasser was a crime scene investigator with the Wichita Police Department, one of those who worked tirelessly to collect shoe impressions, tire tracks, bullet casings, fingerprints, and hairs, all of those that needed to be processed and processed quickly. 
The officers were being encouraged to do this expeditiously because these men were out there. One of the detectives said it best when he said that killing the first person is hard, but everyone after that gets a lot easier. The police went back to the triplex and found out that the cars had returned as well and had cleaned the house out of as many valuables as they could. Also, on their return trip, the cars killed H.G.'s dog, the schnauzer Nikki. Heather Muller's mom came to the house and stopped an officer. She told him that her daughter hadn't come home and they were very worried. And he remembered that all he could say is, I'm sorry. Her mom asked about Aaron. Is Aaron okay? He told her, no, Aaron was not okay. He told all of this to Oxygen for killer siblings. Media outlets picked up the story and showed up at the house quickly. The police decided to use the media to their advantage and release certain clues to get a lead on where their suspects might be. They released the information about Jason Beffert's truck and the engagement ring along with the description of the suspects. And that's how they found out that the truck was at an apartment complex in Wichita. When the description of the silver Dodge Dakota hit the Wichita stations, a man called the police to report that the truck was in a parking lot at his apartment complex. Police immediately came to the complex and by 7.30 a.m. police confirmed that the truck was indeed Jason Beffert's truck. While they were there, another resident came out and told officers he had actually helped a man carry a large TV up to a third floor apartment and could direct them to it. And it's amazing to me how many people began rallying together and identifying and helping the police catch these suspects. The police then rallied the troops. 86 officers and patrol cars had come to the complex. And there were a number of officers that stayed on the ground while another crew of officers silently crept up to the apartment. When they knocked on the apartment, a woman answered, but the door was still partially closed by a chain lock. The officers could see inside enough to see that there was a lot of stuff around the apartment. So it looked almost like somebody had just moved in. Then they heard the sliding porch door open slowly and the officers below were yelling that someone was trying to get out of the apartment. The officers in the hallway burst in and took the man to the ground. It was Reginald Carr, and he all he had to say was, shit, I'm gonna need a lawyer. In the meantime, Jonathan was at a young woman's house he had met earlier. Her mother, she had never been comfortable around Jonathan and was concerned he might have a gun in his jacket. So she decided to pick up the jacket and feel around on it a little bit. While she was doing so, she found an engagement ring. And around that time, they also happened to be watching the news where they saw the news program about the wanted men. And she asked as she saw Reginald being arrested, hey, isn't that your brother? So, the young woman's mother excused herself and went across the street to a neighbor's where she phoned the police and Jonathan bolted when he heard the sirens. But either way, the police came to this girlfriend's house. 
Before the trial was supposed to start in September of 2001, there were some issues with why Reginald Carr had been out and about in the first place. Since the law was instituted while Reginald was out on parole for aggravated assault and drug charges, his parole term went from two years to one, and then due to a paperwork error, his parole was sliced in half again, and Reginald Carr was released from supervised parole six months earlier than the one-year mark. So a lot of people in Wichita were very upset, and rightfully so, that this felon had been out and about when he still should have been in jail. The prosecution was Chief Deputy District Attorney Kim Parker, who assisted Nola Folston. Then there was Reginald's team of Jay Green and Val Wachow. Jonathan's team was Mark Manna and Ron Evans, and Judge Clark had rejected a motion to move the trial out of Cedric County. So a lot of people say that because of all of the media and everything that they believe that it was difficult to select jurors and it was difficult to get a fair case or a fair trial because of all the notoriety that this case had gotten in Wichita, Kansas. But, you know, they had introduced so much information. And as I had said, I had read to you HG's testimony. That isn't things that is made up. That is not a story. That is HG's own testimony. So that testimony is what put these guys in jail. And it, it's actually way more involved. We, we've edited a lot of it. it it's horrific. It's the terror that those people went through. Is It's just absolutely excruciating. It's mind-numbing. So, you know, I, I cannot believe that they would have the nerve to say that the reason they got the death penalty and the reason they got the guilty verdicts they did is because of the media that was reflected on this case. So I just want to throw that out there. Um, so a crime scene investigator also testified to the state of Nikki, the mini schnauzer's body. So I just want to show just how heinous and in the mind of just how brutal these guys were. She explained that the dog had been beaten and stabbed with an ice pick. The Cedric County coroner, Mary Dudley, was called to testify to the injuries that had been inflicted on the four friends as well on December 14th and 15th. Dudley testified that Heather Mueller and Aaron Sander had contact wounds on their heads, meaning that the gun barrel was pressed up against their heads when the cars pulled the trigger. Jonathan's attorney asked Dudley on cross-examination if the distance between the shooter and the victim could show that there had only been one shooter. Dudley probably confused at the fairly stupid question, said, no, you can't tell if there's only one shooter from the distance of a shooter to a victim. Also, a forensic nurse who specializes in examining for sexual assault testified to the lacerations and bruising 
on Heather Muller's body that were consistent with rape. These victims had injuries on their heads, necks, legs, buttocks, toes, faces. I mean, their bodies were covered. That's how brutal it was. But then you think about the fact that they left, they, they killed these people out at the soccer field. They returned to the house to clear the house out, but they took time for this mini schnauzer to beat it up and stab it with an ice pick. This is a mini schnauzer, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with the size of this dog. I mean, you could have left it in the closet. HG had put a muzzle on it. This dog was in no way a danger to them. And as everyone knows, I am a huge animal advocate as well as a human advocate. And the actual brutality of the mentality of brutality that somebody has to be portraying at that time to inflict this type of damage on a dog, it just is totally beyond me. Um... So, Jonathan's attorney would try to claim in his opening statements that Jonathan couldn't have done this because Jonathan had a ticket to catch a train on the night of the murders, but he had gotten lost leaving Wichita and that train ticket had never been used. The attorney entered the unused Amtrak ticket into evidence and then rested his fucking case. That was it. An unused train ticket. It was said that Reginald wanted to take the stand and blame Jonathan. He wanted to testify that Jonathan had told him he'd been with another guy who was tripping and shooting people. So these brothers were essentially just trying to sell the other one down the river. The judge ruled it all as inadmissible hearsay. His lawyers also wanted to enter medical records that suggested Ann Walenta had actually died because of medical malpractice. Who put her in the hospital in the first place? This was also rejected. Then Reginald's attorneys replayed the police interview with H.G. with no explanation as to why. It can only be assumed that the reason they did this because they wanted to reiterate H.G.'s description of Reginald was vague. However, all it really did was upset the jurors and H.G. And I think that was truly their motivation all along. They just wanted to keep the jurors in a state of unrest and uneasiness. And that was their point. In her closing argument, Kim Parker said, This is a crime driven by greed and lust. 
by selfishness and by twisted sexual gratification. Meanwhile, the defendant's attorneys, they just spent their time pointing their fingers at each other. And it's amazing, even to this day, as they're going back and forth with the appeals to the Supreme Court, that's what they're spending most of their time doing, is just finger-pointing at one another as to why they shouldn't be put to death, why they shouldn't be where they are, whose fault is it anyways. Rather than taking any responsibility onto themselves after all of this time, they're just finger-pointing. On November 14, 2002, the jury returned with their verdicts. While Jonathan was acquitted on all counts related to Andrew Schreiber's kidnapping and robbery, both men were convicted on all the other counts. They were each charged and convicted with first-degree capital murder of Ann Walenta, as well as four counts of capital murder of Jason, Heather, Aaron, and Brad, one count of attempted first-degree murder of H.G., five counts of aggravated kidnapping, nine counts aggravated robbery, 20 counts of rape and attempted rape, three counts of aggravated criminal sodomy, one count aggravated burglary, one count burglary, one count of theft, and one count of cruelty to animals. Reginald was also convicted of three counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. The cars didn't even react to the verdicts, but the families did. They hugged and they celebrated. The court went directly to the sentencing phase of the trial upon the verdict. During the impact statements, Andrew Shriver said that there are constant reminders every day. I still live in Wichita, he said. He still drives past the places involved in this crime and the quadruple murder, and he knows it's irrational, but he suffers from survivor's guilt. H.G. also spoke to the men, saying, I speak on behalf of Brad, Aaron, Heather, Ann, Andy, Jason, and myself. One of my favorite seven-year-olds lost her uncle on the 15th. This year, when her mom asked her what she wanted for Christmas, she replied that she had wings, and if they were real, that she could fly to heaven, and she could see her uncle Jason and her papa. I wish life were that simple. I wish that I could put on a pair of wings and that I could go see Jason. But we all know that these are wishes, and they are wishes that we have to wish because of these two soulless monsters. Every day there is a memory or a scar that reminds me of that night. I wake up in sweats from my nightmares. I pace at night because of noises that I think are somebody breaking into my house. And every morning I carefully blow dry my hair to cover up the spot in which I can no longer grow hair. I look at my knees and see the scars from the carpet burns that I got from the rape and in the back of my mind, I wonder when it will happen again. I had no choice in what Reginald and Jonathan Carr did that night. 
and I wasn't given a choice to save Brad or Aaron or Heather or Jason. I had a choice to lie there and die or to get up and live. I chose to live and I will still choose to live. She also told the court that the sentence imposed on them will be a much kinder sentence than they imposed on me, my friends, and my family. There are bright lights in the darkness. Heather Muller's school, St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School, annually awards an eighth grade student the Heather Muller Love of Faith Award as a scholarship. Heather's family also had a fundraiser at her favorite restaurant, Barnard's. During that day, 15% of the sales for the day would go to Heather's camp. This was a camp they started for children who are blind or visually impaired. Brad Hayeka's family created a memorial golf tournament and his father Larry proudly proclaimed that he thinks we had people from 20 states. A few of the families joined the Wichita Community Foundation and founded the Forget Me Not Scholarship. In June of 2003, the first awards were grants from this scholarship. Mercedes Crawford and Jennifer Wynn were the first awardees. Mercedes Crawford has just graduated from Augusta High School where Jason Befferts taught. She had known Jason and had applied for the scholarship because she had wanted to honor him. Jennifer Wynn graduated from Cape and Mount Carmel High School and said, I try my best in everything I do and from everything I read about these four people, they were the same way. It feels good that something positive has come out of what happened. And the most positive thing that has come out of all of this is the relationship of Andrew Schreiber and HG. During the trial, they had struck up a friendship and found that they could connect with each other in a way no one else could. The two became closer after the trial and went on to get married in 2004 and have two children together. Their friend told the killer siblings that uh, On the oxygen program, Killer Siblings, a friend had told the program that Andy had even switched his career after all of this and became a police officer. One of the officers who had worked on this case said to this day, at Christmas time, he leaves his outside lights on at night because that was what guided HG to safety and to help. Hey guys, Mary Ann with Crime Scene and Cupcakes, Dog Mom, Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker, and I know I've been missing an action for a couple of weeks, but we had a little bit of a server crash here, and one of my devices is now completely, let's say, wiped off the map. And the Apple geniuses have promised me they're going to be able to retrieve some recordings that I have 
So the Carr Brother murders and a couple of my podcasts for the Krista Martin podcast were going to be able to get back. They promised me and they are geniuses. So if a genius says he can get it back, he can get it back. So, we should be having those out in the next couple of weeks. But in the meantime, I am recording a, let's call it a little apreview. I don't know if that's even a word. Is that a word? Hmm. Oh, I know what I was thinking of. An amuse-bouche. That's the word I was thinking of. We're going to have an amuse-bouche. So, um... This is kind of what I wanted to do anyways. Um, So we're going to talk about the Carr Brothers' childhood separately from the Carr Brothers' massacre. Because one of the things that the Carr Brothers have discussed a lot in their appeals is their childhood. And why they should not get the death penalty because of what their childhood was like. Well, that's one of them. And then the other thing they talk about is they don't think they should get the death penalty because of one of the errors is that their case was done together, was done concurrently. Jonathan and um, Reginald's case was done at the same time. But we'll get into that when we talk about the massacre itself. But today we're going to talk about their childhood and growing up um, and actually where they were born. Because a lot of podcasts and a lot of shows I listen to keep saying they were born in Dodge City. They weren't born in Dodge City. And it just makes me crazy every time I hear that. So, let's get into it. Reginald Carr was born on November 14th, 1977 in... Cleveland, Ohio, not Dodge City, Cleveland, Ohio, to Reginald Carr Sr. Reginald Carr Sr. was 17 years old, and Janice Harding, Reginald's mom, Jr., who was 16 at the time. Even though they had Reginald Jr., At 17 and 16, they decided to wait until they were 18 years of age to make it official. They had a daughter, Regina, born 14 months after they had given birth to Reginald Jr. And Jonathan followed shortly thereafter on March 30th of 1980. But their young lives were cut short. Regina, however, was diagnosed with leukemia at two years of age. She only lived another year and died at the age of three. Reginald was only four at the time that this happened, and a lot of people said at the trial that he was crushed by the loss of his sister. And this is where you go into the he said, she said type of thing, because at the trial, a lot of people say that a lot of his dysfunction stems from the fact that he lost his sister at such a young age and that he didn't 
he became very dysfunctional at that age and didn't understand how to handle grief and became very detached from people at that age because of losing his sister at such a young age. So a lot of people say that's what created Reginald to become so detached from people was losing his sister at such a young age. Now, remember, we do have his brother, Jonathan, who that's his sister as well. So we do have that in that situation. And that's one of the things that is brought up for the cars at their defense a lot of times is we we hear the story about their sister, which is horrible. Losing a sister at that young of an age, I cannot even imagine. That is a horrible, terrible thing to happen. And, but again, I don't think that discounts you going and killing five people. I do not think it discounts rape. I do not think it discounts burglary. I definitely don't think it discounts or gives you a pass on doing any of the things that you had done. And I think we have all seen stories from others who have gone through similar horrific situations and who have risen from those situations and have become very hardworking, amazing people. So... We're going to hold that right there. So then we go back to Reginald. Um, So as Reginald is going through his childhood, we start to see very sexually inappropriate things with Reginald. Reginald's mom um, babysat a lot of kids in their home. And there was a a lot of reports that Reginald was um, inappropriately fondling and touching the girls that Reginald's mother was babysitting. And of course, I immediately, a lot of alarms start going off in my head. Where the heck are Child Protective Services? Um, how is this happening? But again, you're dealing, <coughs> you're dealing in these neighborhoods. Um, and the mother, from what I understand, mom is moving around a lot. She's, the parents are moving uh, both the parents had alcohol and drug issues, and so they're moving to different schools. Um, from what I understood, they went to eight different schools in eight years, so they're they're constantly going to different schools. Mom is babysitting kids, and so he's, you know, at six years old, he is fondling and being inappropriate with kids, and so you have that situation. So mom Janice was staying one foot ahead of the system while having her son become her personal drug dealer. That's right. Why go out and find one? Her kid was doing the dealing for her. But here's the thing, her son Reginald was 11 years old. It just seemed to me like Reginald was just throwing himself at the world. No fear, no care, which is the most dangerous, especially at 11. Here he is dealing drugs, and it sounds like taking care of mom while going to elementary school. And just saying, WTF. 
So here, the mom is drinking and drugging. By 16, Reggie is heavily drinking. He's fighting with anyone and everyone. He has no boundaries. He was suspended for sexually harassing a teacher in eighth grade. He has so much anger and aggression, he actually beat up one of his teachers in ninth grade. Jonathan, in the meantime, idolizes Reggie in everything he does. In 1995, Reggie is sentenced to 13 months in prison for robbing a bookstore at the community college in Dodge City wearing a Michael Myers Halloween mask. Michael Myers, people. He was also ordered to serve six months for aggravated assault and subverting the legal process. However, while he was in prison, he couldn't stay out of trouble and ended up picking up another drug charge. So he got 28-month parole, and, and then he got picked up for drunk driving. However, during this time, there was a horrible error that happened and caused one of those dominoes to fall over, and it ruined so many lives in Wichita, Kansas after that. So there was a data error and a new law to cut parole for non violent offenders and that law allowed him to be let out so on December 1st of 2000 he's allowed to go free and on December 4th is when Reginald and Jonathan team back up and decide to take a road trip to Wichita, Kansas And that road trip is the beginning of the Wichita Massacre.